as I sit here and begin, there's this slight sense of, oh, things aren't quite as they're supposed to be. Do you ever have that feeling? And what's not supposed to be is that I'm not sure I can read what's on this piece of paper. And, I rem- and then I'm remembering one of my teachers and, a co- and also a colleague of mine when she got to the point in her Dharma talks where she had to put glasses on. And I think I'm there, but I haven't got, <laughs> I haven't got any <laughs> reading glasses. I-, I may have a few more weeks left of this, but we'll see. So tonight I'd like to reflect on the theme of the retreat, which is called Stillness and Movement. And you may think we've been reflecting on that the last three days, and there's nothing more to say, because you've been practicing a lot in stillness and in movement. And from the perspective of the body, which we've talked about probably more than some of you care to mention, there's been a lot around stillness and movement. The stillness of the the sitting posture, the movement of the Qigong postures, and the stillness in the Qigong postures. And the walking meditation is also movement. (coughs) We began to introduce the idea of seeing, okay, yes, and look at this other dimension, not just the body, where stillness and movement are inner experiences. Actually, if we look at our inner life, they're mostly what we notice in the beginning is the movement. We don't notice the stillness. Or we may have some kind of inner stillness from our conditioning that may not be... uh, a fully open stillness. Sometimes we have stillnesses that are frozen or contracted, <coughs> contracted movement, we could say, that have become still, but it's not doesn't feel like real stillness yet. So I want to look more at this inner dimension of inner stillness and inner movement, as well as outer. As we explore further in the path, we can see that actually that inner life of stillness and movement isn't so different from what we call the outer life of stillness and movement. So the spiritual life is very often equated with this search for peace. And I think all of us resonate with that possibility. Even if we've never experienced any peace, I think there's some way we recognize something, even in the concept, something about peace is somewhat attractive to us. And the reason for that, I believe, is actually it's because it's our nature. It's closer to us than all of our, the war we make internally or externally. It's closer to us than the things that shout the loudest, but we don't always recognize it. When we think about the search for peace or the path of peace, we often acquaint, see if this is true for you right now. I don't want to just say that this is what's true. Find out if this is true, that we equate peace 
very often with stillness. That actually peace will be when, for example, in meditation, don't you think sometimes peace will be when my mind shuts up? That will be when peace, when it's all come to stop, when the sound has gone. Peace will be once everyone's in the meditation hall and no one's making any noise and no one's coughing and no one's leaving. And then there's, then there's peace. We equate peace with a kind of stillness, a conditional stillness, a stillness that's based on the conditions being still. Everyone being still, no one saying a word, no one coughing. Like right now. And there's a kind of peace there, isn't there? In that quietness. However, it's a very conditional kind of peace, isn't it? It's like every time you wanted peace in your life, you'd have to go, ah, quick, I'm going back to Guy House. In fact, actually, Guy House wasn't all peace, it was a lot of headache, but there were some peaceful parts. That's what I want. And we equate the peace with the stillness. And there is a kind of stillness that's important here. And I want to highlight that one first before the second kind that is not conditional on everything stopping. So this first kind of stillness, which you may or may not have experienced here, is the kind of stillness that you probably all know. I'm always struck by it at home when I'm in the kitchen at night. And night's already a little bit more still, isn't it? The birds have stopped calling, the neighbours have stopped shouting, or whatever they do. It's already a little bit quieter. And then the fridge stops. You know that experience in the kitchen? I don't know why. They obviously have some sort of cyclic motor. I don't know about fridges, but it seems to stop. And you kind of go, ah. There's a kind of a peace. There's a kind of a stillness when things stop. (coughs) And there's kind of stillness when, and kind of a peace when things aren't moving. So we might go to places where we experience peace. Might be, some of you have experienced that if you've ever been to the desert. Anywhere sometimes these sort of vast, still expanses where there isn't a whole lot of movement happening. Certainly aren't many people to disturb the peace. They're the big disturbers of peace, so we think. And there we are in the desert, (coughs) or in nature. Very often people connect with this in nature. We're less disturbed by what normally disturbs us. And there's a kind of a stillness there. Sometimes for people it's in a church. You know, sometimes you might go into a big, magnificent cathedral and just the sheer magnificence of it just kind of renders you quiet and there's a kind of quietitude there. This is one kind of stillness, one kind of peace, and it is not freedom because it is dependent on keeping at bay all the things that move, 
all the things that make noise, all the things that either call the loudest, like I spoke about the other night, I made the, I talked about we get attracted to the things that call the loudest in our mind or in the adverts on the underground. If you go to, I don't go to London very often anymore. Well, I do, I go quite often, but I don't live there. And then you're on the underground now, and you go up the escalator, and they have adverts that move at you. Like Harry Potter pictures. You know? And the adverts actually, it's not enough anymore just to be, hey, buy one of these. They have to go, they have to dance at you as you walk up, as you go up the escalator. Have you seen that? We need more and more to attract our attention, it seems. So sometimes we can get into this duality of, well, spiritual practice, yes, I want the stillness. I want my mind to stop. I want everyone to be quiet so I can have a moment's peace. But then we find we're sitting here and we're really attracted to the movement that happens, really fascinated by that inner movement. Yeah, I want the peace, but wow, look where my mind just went. Wow, that was juicy, or oh God, that's terrible. And we're kind of fascinated with the movement of our own mind or the movement of our feelings. So how do we manage then? How do we handle the fact that we want peace and stillness but we're also very attracted to movement in some ways? I mean, we move. We move. We're beings that can move for the most part. And the mind does move. It's what it does well. It's meant to. So is, it, is peace possible if we still want a mind that moves? Is peace possible when actually the world isn't going to stop? You know, sometimes we can have the, the feeling of you know, that phrase, stop the world, I want to get off. It's like, stop! It's too much movement, it's too much going on, it's too much, stop! We think peace will be when all this comes to cessation. And there is a kind of peace that comes when things come to cessation. But liberation is not dependent on things coming to cessation. How could it be? It wouldn't be freedom, would it? It wouldn't be freedom. So if you were to plump for one school the movement school or the stillness school, do you have a kind of inner... I'm curious if you... Maybe you want both, but do you have a little preference going on these days? Anybody? I'm curious if you're willing to vote. We'll have a little vote going. Anyone currently... It's not a definitive statement about you, and you're not getting it wrong if you prefer whatever you think you're supposed to prefer if you're at Guy House. Any, anyone in the more of the stillness <laughs> school at the moment... Yeah, you don't have to vote. It's a silly exercise in a way. (laughs) Anyone in the movement school? Yeah, about half and half, and some abstainers, (coughs) or some completely equanimous. So I talked a little bit about the, the discomfort with movement is that sometimes we want it to stop. It just keeps moving, doesn't it? You know, no sooner has something kind of relaxed in your mind, one thought has just kind of, ah, 
It's just relaxed and there's a moment of peace. And then something else starts moving. Either it's a pain or another thought or, a, or even the thought that says, I just got really still then. Wasn't that great? Right now, it's moving again. And off we go. Oh dear, blown it now. Right? But also interesting to examine what is your discomfort or ambivalence around stillness. Because we also have it. You know, as I spoke about that one retreat the other day, she said, yeah, things became still and I found myself looking for an issue. What is our ambivalence around stillness? Even if you might feel yourself longing for it right now, you've also probably experienced there comes a moment of it. You go, hmm, this is nice. Now what? How's this going to solve my argument with my boss? So what? Or whatever it might be, there'll be different things and it's worth for you finding out for yourself as stillness develops and deepens in you, what are some of the things that are in the way of us really deepening with it? Usually some beliefs. One of the things is that we're a little bit attached often to activity Activity and action is where we know ourselves very often. We, we might be someone who gets things done. Are you someone who gets things done? And in practice, we're not asking, saying you shouldn't be someone who gets things done. We're always interested in attachment and grasping. <coughs> One of the ambivalences to stillness here, you may have noticed, is that when we're a little bit still, we don't get so much uh, self-reflection. There's no one here telling us, you're doing great, or you're terrible. No way we can measure ourselves or know ourselves or get any personal feedback apart from what we tell ourselves. And you wouldn't want to rely on that too much, really. So much so that, I don't know if it's happened to you already, but... You know, there's not much going on. We want something to be going on to tell us who we are. Sometimes there's not much going on. And in not much going on, I've certainly found myself wandering around on retreat at times, looking for something that's going on. Can you see anything going on? I I used to sit at the old guy house a long time ago, a little tiny place. And I was on retreat often, and the staff were in the room next door, not so removed, a little a bit more removed here, but they were in the room next door and there was a hatch in between. And um, if there wasn't enough food for us, we'd knock on the hatch and they'd pass some food through the hatch. But, you know, I was just there on retreat for ages and nothing going on. And then my ear would go to the hatch. Oh, sounds so nice in there. They're laughing. I'm sure they weren't always laughing. If you've ever been on staff here, you know they're not always laughing, but laughing, being cosy, and feeling that draw to the movement, draw to the animation, draw to the human contact. Well, we're human. It's fine, but what is the ambivalence? What's not happening? What am I missing in the stillness? What did I believe I was missing in the stillness that I thought I would find in there? And if you've ever had the good fortune to be on staff, some of you have, in the end, you know, even that thing which we idealize, 
as where it's all happening. If I could just get that situation together in my life, then there would be peace. Have you ever thought that? If I could just get the right job, right partner, right house, right, then there would be peace. But, you know, just in this example, yes, being on staff at Guy House is not the quick route to peace. It's our own mind, it's our body. Yes, we have the practice and the support to look deeply, but there is no idealized condition that's going to plop you into peace. (coughs) There's something in the stillness we can be ambivalent about also, is that when things do start to settle down and become a little bit more still, there's a way we don't have the same references and we experience a kind of a not knowing. Have any of you experienced that? It's like, you know, even things it could be, well, I don't even know if I'm doing it right or not. I don't know if, I just don't know. And we can be ambivalent about not knowing. Not knowing can feel like, um, when we're not used to it or realize its place in the path, not knowing can actually feel scary or it can feel um, a little bit like we've lost power. Like a lot of our power and um, sense of solidity comes from knowing. It's like, I know. I know who I am. I know. In the not knowing, that sort of drops away, and we're left a little more referenceless and not knowing. And it takes a practice. And the not knowing has can be scary, but it has a... Um, a huge potentiality in it. When we don't know, when we genuinely don't know, and this is different from the not knowing of ignorance, the not knowing of ignorance is the not knowing and the not wanting to know. The not knowing of practice, the not knowing that leads onward, is the not knowing but being really open to what shows up. Huge potential. In the Buddha Dharma, in the teachings of the Buddha, in the different schools and traditions that have been born out of that beautiful teaching from an ordinary human being who woke up, whose teaching happened to have such a clarity and brilliance that it's managed to sustain, actually. But in those schools that have arisen out of that, it's always pointing to the end of suffering. That's common across the board. But you could say you find two orientations, two two lenses, two angles on that path. One of them is where the teachings point directly at the nature of the liberated mind. Basically, letting you know right here and now that actually you already have what it takes. It's already here. Wake up. All of your delusion and confusion is like a a cloud over the already bright, luminous sky. Wake up. 
It's not somewhere you have to get to. It's actually already here. It's one orientation. And it's true. It is already here. The other orientation which can seem different and at odds with it, it's not at odds at all, but it can seem like that, is where, where these teachings begin, initially begin, <coughs> excuse me, which is where we're asked to study experience. That's what we've been doing these days. Study experience. Study it not just from your intellect, but study it through direct contact. Study what happens when you take a breath, when you take a step, when you do this gesture. Study. Why? Because experience is where we get snagged, isn't it? Your experience is where you get hooked. Your experience is where you start grasping. The things that move. Experience is basically things that move. Here's where movement fits into this picture. All experience moves. External experience, internal experience. It's moving. Study it and study how you get. You keep getting hooked here. Study the mechanism of getting hooked and study the release from getting hooked. Same, same path. Orientation from the perspective of the clinging. Orientation from the perspective of the not clinging. Can you see that? Right. Actually, you're, you're already luminous and radiant. You just don't realize it because you're clinging. What are you clinging to? Things that move. What are they? Experience. What moves? Body moves. Feelings move. Perceptions move. Our patterns move. Consciousness seems to move. Right? There's a sound, it comes, it goes. These are the things you're clinging to. Study that. The Buddha isn't saying become an expert meditator. You can. It's beautiful. It's really beautiful. But he's interested in the freedom, actually. To meditate in order to see how clinging arises and how it's released. So let's look a little bit further. Anything not clear so far? Anything you want to ask about so far? Feel free. You can do that now. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm struggling with what you just said then. Um, I don't know if if, if I was everything it right. Isn't our experience, isn't our knowledge coming from our experience? I don't, know if you were, I don't even know if you were saying that or not mm-hmm. saying that. But how I, how I gain insight yeah. is through my own experiences. Yes, absolutely. Right, okay. Yeah, no, this is, so did you hear something about experience is lesser? Or I heard you say something about experience which wasn't making sense to me. Okay, good. Yeah, so I'm wondering if you heard that somehow experience got dismissed in that equation I was making. Is that what you heard? Yeah, good. It wasn't. The is- No, experience is absolutely where we learn, completely, by having it, by really having the experience and being fully there with it. It's how we learn, completely. What tends... <coughs> 
what tends to happen is because we get fascinated with the things that move, we get fascinated with experience, we kind of start taking hold of it and going, okay, this is what I am. For example, there's a difference between, let's say it's a mind state that arises. Let's say it's love. Let's choose something beautiful and positive. Love is arising. I feel very radiant, open to all beings. It's an experience, right? There's something we can learn from it. It's moving. The issue isn't the love. The issue is the grasping. When we go, oh, okay, I've got this sus now, right? Okay, put my feet up, and then tomorrow I start hating someone, and I don't know how to hold the two. So that's the, you know, the issue is not the experience. We need it. In fact, there's a lovely story from one tradition, if I can remember it. It's one of these nice Zen stories where, um, you know, in the monastery, the guy is practicing with the great master and he's allowed to come and ask a question every six months or something, you know, these kind of... Something like that. And anyway, he comes to ask the first question, bows to the master and says... Um, What is the what is the um, what is the basis for good judgment? And the master says, mm. experience. And then the student says, thank you. Goes away. Six months later, comes back and says, and what is the basis? And how do you, yeah? How do you get experience? How do you get experience? And the Zen master goes, mm. bad judgment. <laughs> Right, so that's talking about the experience when we learn from the difficult experiences when we've got ourselves into bad knocks. Or wisdom is actually to support us to understand that process. Sometimes our experience isn't bad judgment. Sometimes it's a beautiful fruit of our practice or just of what we are, and we can learn from that too. Is that clarified a little bit? Okay, good. Okay, so a little bit about the fascination with movement and the fascination with experience, which is different from the opening to movement and opening to experience. Um, One of the ways we can look and probably experience for ourselves the restlessness in our constant movement, our constant inner movement, our constant ego activity, is a kind of restlessness of searching for something, Have you experienced that here? It's like you want something. You want a better moment. You want peace. You want love. You want something else. You want something. And after all, aren't I searching for peace? Aren't I on a spiritual path? And there's something in that very searching nature that we need to look at, which is different from having experience. The searching nature is already presupposing that there's something missing. Right? You're only looking for something because you think it's not here. Otherwise, you wouldn't look for it, would you? I mean, if it's already here, you don't need to go looking. And there's something in practice where we do keep going looking and eventually we wind up recognizing that what we're left with actually is ourself right where we are, that something about the very search itself is problematic. Even though we have to, it seems like we have to do it. So, a story to help illustrate this that I like, um, I've told many times also. 
So many years ago, my husband and I were staying somewhere, house-sitting for some friends who'd gone away. And he was doing the washing up. Telephone rang. Um, he answered the phone and was in the conversation with somebody on the phone. And he shouted to me, um, don't throw out the dishwater. So I didn't throw out the dishwater. And he finished the phone call and he said, oh, I've lost my wedding ring. And he was feeling his finger and he goes, yeah, I've lost my wedding ring. And we, you know, the dishwater was all horrible and slimy and you pour it out and you sieve it and no, no ring in there. Oh, plug, no, it didn't go down the sink. Okay, must have left it somewhere else. Where's my wedding ring? Um, you know, already starting to feel a little distressed. Oh, no, you know. Oh, we bought that when we were young and in love. Shame we've lost it, you know. All the kind of story that goes with it. Oh, I'll have to go and get another one. And, oh, but we got that in Newton Abbott and oh, blah, blah, blah. And, and looking around the house, no wedding ring, no wedding ring. And, and I looked towards him and I said, it's on your finger. And he said, oh. And he'd been looking on this hand. And he said, and I could even feel where it was missing. You know that experience if you've ever worn rings and you take them off? You can feel where they were. You know something's missing. And he had that experience. It was genuinely missing in his, from the depths of his heart. But it was a complete delusion. There was nothing missing. And it began and sprung a whole search and a whole story about who we once were. And, and it was all rather unnecessary. Although we can get very fascinated with the story. And there is something like, I mean, it's a very simple story, but there is something like that. Our knee-jerk movement out to start searching. And where do we search? We search in and amongst the things that move. Experience. We search there for home. Because our lens is trained toward experience we're more fascinated with experience because it moves quicker it's more colorful it's more dazzling it's more shocking our attention is trained to the things that move it is not so trained to the things that are still or the things towards stillness This little girl where my husband and I lived in a retreat center in North America and one of the staff had a little girl about three called Kiko, very cute. And she was doing her three-year-old thing and her three-year-old thing was running around, really excited, full of beans, full of that exuberance of youth and possibility and all the sense of possibility came out in the phrase of, what's next? What's next? This can feel the movement. It's beautiful in a three-year-old. It's what we have to do. You know? It's like, oh, yeah, the world. There's a whole world to discover out there. What's next? What's the next thing the world's going to show me? Is it going to be a flower, football? What is it? What's next? Right? And um, that was her phrase. Sometimes... Small kids get a little phrase that they hook onto. She loved it. And at the time, we were rather young and zealous Dharma practitioners. And my husband said to her, hearing her say this all the time, 
And he said it kindly. He said, Kiko, what's now? (laughs) And she went, nothing. What's next? Right? Nothing. What's now? Nothing. Nothing here interesting. What's next? And that's fine if you're three. You've got the world to discover. But there is a kind of way our attention gets trained to experience. It gets fascinated with experience. And in the spiritual journey, we have to come to a point where we say, yes, okay, experience happens and it's important and I can learn from it. But if I think I'm going to find my home, my ultimate home in something that moves, I'm going to be disappointed or I'm going to get spat out the other end. If I start to make home, if I start to say, that's it, I've got it now, I've had a moment of peace in the meditation, right, how do I keep this? We can already feel the rigidity of that wish to keep hold. We can't make our home in the things that move, because they move, and the things themselves are not of the nature to try and give us peace. It's not a mistake. Peace is possible. Peace is possible with experience. Peace is possible through learning with experience. But if we try to take one particular experience and make it home, we can't, actually. It's not that you've got that wrong. It's not of the nature of things. Things are moving. And if we try and grasp onto them, what happens? The metaphor is used sometimes of you now experience keeps moving and it does, like a like a rope through our hand. It's moving. Sometimes it's like a butterfly through our hand or a flower. But in this metaphor, a rope moving through the hand. We get to a bit of the rope we like the look of, hold on to the rope, but the rope keeps moving. And we get rope burn. It's not of the nature of things that move to give us ultimate satisfaction. So how do we come to peace with experience without rejecting it? Because that becomes the other extreme. We then think, oh, well, experience can't be my home, so I don't want any more of that. I just want stillness now. I want the real thing. Real spiritual depths won't have movement. And then we get into a dualistic mentality of pushing things that move away or the world impacts us and it's like, oh no, I don't want that. It moves too much. It's too big. It's too too something. So in a way we need to examine, so that second path, it's not the second path, is other Buddha or Buddhist orientation to examine experience and examine where we cling to it. This is in order for us to understand the mechanism of release, how release happens. And release happens through letting go, and letting go happens through understanding. <coughs> Actually understanding what's happening. How come I keep grasping? Not just an intellectual analysis, but through the direct experience of it, through coming into contact with it. It's the only place we really learn in a cellular way that allows us to start to release and let go.
So we want to examine both. And at this point I'm putting them as both, stillness and movement. So we go deeper, we might not see them as separate. But let's for the moment call it both, stillness and movement. One metaphor that's used is of the sky. I've already used that metaphor, the sky. And experience is like things that happen in the sky. What happens in the sky? Birds fly through the sky. Sometimes you get those vapor trails in the sky. Clouds come through the sky. From the perspective of the sky, it's no problem what shows up in the sky. But if we cling to any one thing that shows up in the sky, we'll suffer. Another metaphor is the night sky, the beautiful, when it's clear, the beautiful black, black, empty, vast, still, very still, dark sky. When you look at the night sky, where does your attention go? Does it go, well, sometimes we don't even want to look at the night sky. It's just too damn big. Gosh, we can feel our kind of insignificance or our smallness. But usually our attention is more likely to go to the things in the sky like the stars. That's where we go. And not only that, we make patterns out of the stars and it's beautiful. It's like, wow, there's Orion. It's not Orion. It's a number of stars. We've called it Orion. We agreed that we call it Orion. And it's interesting that we call it Orion. And we can make meaning of that and understand things through that. And that's beautiful. But it's kind of secondary. What is letting us see the stars at all? We very rarely attune and notice the blackness, the stillness, the potency the unmoving potency of the night sky. Fireworks night, coming up soon. Maybe you're tired of fireworks night already. Now you're 48. You know, done it, been there, done that. No firework thrills me anymore. It's kind of sad, really. We have to come to a place, yes, when we're six, we go, wee, you know, with all the ones that whiz through the sky. Maybe you still do that. Great. And there's some really amazing fireworks now. They don't just do that now. They do other things. They get more fascinating. (laughs) But we get fascinated with the colour and the movement and the dynamism, and the dynamism is extraordinary. There's nothing about dynamism that is wrong. It's if we think it's the place where we can find security, then we find what is dynamic keeps changing, and dynamic things are of the nature to be born and fade away. Dynamism is beautiful. But we need to understand its relationship to the depth. 
the colours that manifest on the surface, and not just talking about fireworks, but this is a metaphor, the, the beautiful experience that arises on the surface like colours. What are colours? I mean, even we know this from physics. Colours, as I understand it, are the differentiation of white light. And they appear. There's an appearance of colour. And we go, wow, I love yellow. Or I hate red. And we have all kinds of views and opinions about different things that arise. We may have lost the relationship, and here it's an intellectual relationship between colour and the white light of undifferentiatedness. How would that be applied to our own experience? Because if we take hold of all the things that arise at the surface, our thoughts, (coughs) our feelings, our perceptions, our movement, it's like we're in the ocean, or we are the ocean, and there's a little bit of froth on the top of one of the waves, and we go, oh yeah, that's me. That's good, I'll hang out here on this little bit of froth. It's a beautiful bit of froth. It's really frothy. And the nature of the waves is to keep moving. And the froth winds up on the beach. And if we think we're the froth, we suffer. But when we know and contact that we're the ocean, then the froth is really beautiful. It's really extraordinary. But we're not trying to make it our home. It's a beautiful teaching that says, people go from wave to wave looking for wetness, never knowing that they are the ocean. People go from wave to wave looking for wetness, never knowing they are the ocean. Like maybe this wave will let me rest. But the wave keeps crashing. But we can stop, we can drop, we can start to inquire into the relationship between the waves and the ocean, between the differentiation of colour and the undifferentiated white light, between the movement, like a, a, a cinema screen is a good example as well, the cinema screen with all these people, you know, and we get really involved with them, even though we know we've at the cinema and we've paid and we're eating popcorn, we get really involved, I hope he doesn't do that to her and, and she better get him. Right? And we're looking and we're completely, completely involved. But what is letting that movement and colour be shown is the screen. The still white screen. Practice isn't telling us to reject the movement, not at all, because then it wouldn't be freedom and then what kind of life would it be? This life moves. It's amazing that it moves. Isn't it amazing? Even though, yes, it's difficult at times, 
It can be painful as we start to stop and really inquire with sincerity, which you've been doing. Really inquire, yeah, what, in a way what we're, what we're exploring here is what is this? What is this human condition that moves, physically moves, moves internally and is also still? What is this? What is the relationship of those things? Can there be stillness with movement? Can there be movement with stillness? Are they the same? Are they different? So practice is not about rejecting experience at all. But it is about understanding our preoccupation with it. Do you see the difference? Because experience is going to keep arising, it arises. In fact, as, we, as the grasping, grasping softens, we can enjoy experience more. As we let go of life a little bit more, we start to see how extraordinary it is. Probably you've had that experience. You may not use the word extraordinary, but maybe you've been outside here these days and you're a little bit more still or quiet and you see one of the rabbits. In fact, someone told me they had a a projection on the rabbits. The rabbits are useful. Her projection on the rabbit allowed her to see something about herself. Her projection on the rabbit was, how can you just sit there doing nothing? Like, shouldn't you be doing something, at least eating grass? And then she realized, oh, yeah. That's and her own inner pressure. Shouldn't I be doing something? Right? <coughs> but maybe you've just been there and life stands out to you more clearly. Something stands out maybe externally or internally. The rabbit stands out. The feeling stands out. And when we're not pushing it or pulling it, it's like, wow, look at that. Life is moving. So in practice, we're coming into a wise relationship with stillness and movement. That we're not grasping to... Well, we might grasp to the stillness, that's okay, but we'll see the grasping... And that usually happens when we're grasping stillness and we start hating people that are moving in here. Then you can pretty much guarantee you're clinging to the stillness. right? Or we're grasping to the movement and we can't bear it when people look still. How dare you look still? Things are moving. Get with it. As we understand and explore the mechanism of clinging something can come into more harmony with this question of stillness and movement. As we start slowly, it's not like we suddenly everything's let go of and we understand everything immediately. We might sometimes have those moments and then we see the clinging again, it re-arises. One thing that can happen is that there's a softening of that boundary of self and other. 
and people have talked about it here. It's like, oh yeah, start to 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 be less afraid of people or love them a little bit more or at least not hate them for a moment or be afraid of them for a moment. As the grasping softens, so do our definitions about ourself. That I'm like this and I'm not like that. And we start to let in the fact of what what is actually being taught to us, expressed in a very beautiful teaching, some of you probably know, from Srinasagadat Maharaj, where he says, wisdom, so the practice of looking deeply, he, he just says, wisdom tells me I'm nothing, no thing. Love tells me that I'm everything. <coughs> and between these two, my life flows. There's not one thing I can name and say, that's me, that's it. Right, got it. I'm no thing. I'm no one thing. Realizing that, then I actually recognize that I'm everything. And between these two, my life flows. So I want to read you a poem before I end. Actually, I have two poems. Hmm. I think I'll save that one for tomorrow. And the other poem that I want to tell you, tell you I actually don't remember it. So I'm wondering if anyone here knows it. <coughs> or, you can, or you can help me out. I normally have it in a file upstairs, but I didn't bring that file with me. And it's part of the Four Quartets by T.S. Eliot. Does anybody know some of that? Or you're not going to own up in case you're going to get shown up? But I can remember part of it. There's a, there's a whole beautiful section. Maybe I'll find it for tomorrow. But the pertinent part... Does anybody know the bit that begins? It's near the end of one of them. And it goes... That's the one. You know the one I'm on. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you. We cannot. We we shall not cease from exploration. And at the end of all our exploring, we shall arrive back where we started and know that place for the first time. A condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Let's sit together for a minute to end.
we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring is to arrive where we started and to know that place for the first time. A condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. And that doesn't happen later. It's here. Right where you are. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.